You're listening to episode 106 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I am Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 6th of August 2020 here in Norwich as we're recording today's episode. So Steph, what's going on? We are extremely busy at the moment, not least because of the Norwich Crime Writing Festival, which was announced properly last week. Oh yes, it's all kicked off, Simon. It's very busy. As you mentioned, uh, Norwich Crime Writing Festival is back this year, the 10th to the 13th of September. But this year it is in a completely digital format. All of our events with authors, so that's Q&As, book launches, discussion panels, they are all completely free for you to sign up and watch online on YouTube. And we also have some crime writing workshops uh, that are taking place as well, which are paid for and are taking place over Zoom. Our headliners this year are US thriller writer Attica Locke, who will be delivering our annual Noirage lecture. We've got Ayinka Braithwaite, who wrote the legendary book, My Sister the Serial Killer, which was a literary sensation last year when it was released. We've got Olivia Norek, who is a French writer who's publishing his first uh, book in translation, English translation, called The Lost and the Damned. Uh, we've got an amazing podcast on Huaro with Mark Aldridge and Sophie Hanna, who are both very well-known super fans of Agatha Christie, which is very exciting. And their discussion will be published on the Writing Life podcast. We've got uh, book groups aplenty, which are focusing on Attica Locke's work. We've got a crime fiction anthology launch. We've got workshops with Duncan Campbell, who's a former Guardian crime correspondent who's talking about true crime. And we've got a workshop on researching historical fiction with Elizabeth Haynes. We've got so much on this year. It's all going to be taking place online. You can tune in from wherever you are in the world. And yeah, we're just really, really excited that we could bring Noirage back for another year. Yeah, and it's great that it's kind of got all the all the classic noirage staples as well. You know, you've got the lecture in there, you've got workshops, you've got some great panels and discussions. Um, and although it's not happening at Dragon Hall and up at university, it's it's still happening in its own online digital way, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Hopefully we'll get to welcome more and more crime fans, lots of newbie crime fans to the festival this year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, head over to the website at noirage.co.uk to find out all the information. And that is spelled N-O-I-R-W-I-C-H. It's a pun, guys. You know, film noir is not a misspelling, we promise. Yeah, it's entirely on purpose. Uh, So also we have at the moment our creative writing online courses, many of which have sold out already, but we do have some left. And I think we've managed to put on another couple of tutors to meet demand, haven't we? We have, yeah. So they sold out in lightning speed this year. Um, So what we've done is we've added another cohort for Start Writing Creative Nonfiction, which will be tutored by Ed Parnell. And we've also added another cohort for Start Writing Fiction, which will be tutored by Lynn Bryan. But again, places are filling up very quickly. So we encourage you to book as soon as you can. There are very limited spaces of about 15 students per course. Yeah, and if you're looking for the next level of tutoring, we also have a level two fiction course with Angelie Joseph with some places still available. Meanwhile, our book club is progressing nicely with lots of interest and discussion over on our Discord community chat. So the book we're reading is Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke, who is, of course, going to be delivering the Noirage lecture. So this all syncs up very nicely. And uh, yeah, people are making their way through the book. Uh, I think they're kind of romping through it because once you start reading it, you can't stop. And Yeah, if you want to take part in the discussions, do join the Discord server because there's already lots of interesting chatter there and we're also going to have more official Zoom K 
catch-ups where you can talk about what you thought about the book and the themes inside it. We've also started publishing uh, some weekly articles which are related to the book club. So this week we've published some questions for readers. So uh, if you finish the book and you feel like, uh, no, if you finish the book and you want to discuss it with friends, family and fellow members of the book club, our program officer Flo has pulled together some interesting questions on uh, ideas of justice, the stories that make us and questioning authority. We'll put a link to the Discord chat down in the show notes, so just click that if you'd like to join in. Something else that's happening over on Discord and being run by Flo again is our drop-in writing sessions. So these used to take place in Dragon Hall where we'd have people come in one evening and sit down and write together with a bit of a prompt and a bit of a free write. These obviously can't happen right now because the building is still closed but we are now operating them online on discord and there's actually one this evening which i am finally going to be able to attend which i'm really excited about because the ones at dragon hall despite the fact that i actually work there i was never able to attend due to various childcare related antics but this one being online i can just tune in from the same computer that i'm working at during the day so drop in writing time starring a very special guest simon jones (laughs) Yes, although, of course, by the time this podcast goes out, uh, that particular one will have already happened, but we're going to be doing (laughs) lots more in the future. So yeah, if you want to be notified of when we do these writing sessions and various other writing sprints, then the Discord is the place to be. So on the podcast today, we have a recording of an event that took place at Dragon Hall a while back, because obviously there haven't been many events at Dragon Hall in 2020. Uh, This is with uh, Elvira Donas, an Albanian writer who lives in Switzerland. It was a Meet the World event uh, run in partnership with BCLT as part of their Literary Translation and Creative Writing Summer School, and also had support from the Swiss Arts Council. Elvira was in town along with her translator, Clarissa Botsford, and her publisher, Stefan Tobler, because her book, Sworn Virgin, had just been translated into English. And the discussion is chaired by Rosie Goldsmith and is full of really interesting insight about the translation process and covers issues around identity and the nature of speaking multiple languages. And Elvira talks really interestingly about the fact that she actually wrote the book originally in Italian, She is someone who speaks many, many languages, of which I am extremely envious. Me too. So yes, here is Elvira, along with Clissa and Stefan, talking with Rosie Goldsmith. I love being in this place. Forget the heat. Forget all that. Um, (laughs) um, This is uh, also an opportunity for me to say thank you to everybody who's been running the BCLT and all the students and so on. I've um, mainly been able to dip into the Italian workshop, but it's been fantastic. And um, this is my dream team here. Now, um, the journey of this book and of this session starts here. We have an author. We have a translator and we have a publisher. And that might sound like an absolutely horrendous oversimplification and insult to all of them, because all of them and all of you and we are all um, multiple identities. We cannot simplify this in any way at all. We're all, as Elvira Donez says, we're all very messed up. Um, (laughs) You've been saying that for the... In, messed up in a very good way, um, ling- linguistically and culturally, we're all very messed up. So what we're going to do in this session is, is discuss this idea of um, multiculturalism, multilingualism in our life, in our literature, and, um, and in translation 
very much in translation. And we're going to talk about it uh, specifically in relation to this book, Sworn Virgin, which is the perfect book to, um, to highlight all these issues. So to start off with, I'm not going to do a Wikipedia introduction to everyone, and you can look it up afterwards, but what I'm going to do is ask each of them to describe themselves linguistically. What is their own linguistic background? Elvira Donas, where did you come from? <laughs> I, came, I came from a very small language, small because we are a very little country, from the Albanian language. Uh, I used to live under, I grew up under a communist dictatorship, so I always remember, since I was four or five years old, I had this thing of, the sensation of not being able to breathe, and that grew up and grew up with me. Um, so one day I left the country, so yes, I come from Albania, my first language is Albanian, but I consider myself a linguistic gypsy, or a nomad, or an island sometimes, because uh, Italian, because of the English, because of the French, because of the Spanish, and another language that I'm trying to, I'm grappling with right now. Which is Hebrew, you're trying to learn. <laughs> yes, 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 it's, yeah, I'm ashamed to say that, but yes. Ashamed because it's, it's completely different from the other languages. But yes, I consider How myself... How did you learn Italian, though? Uh, well, I was, this is a very nice story, but I do not want to, to tire you. Uh, I was 10 when I asked my father to give me the possibility to find a, 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 a group of people that uh, were studying Italian at that time, and they were all grown-ups, adults, but my father knew the teacher, so it was this tall man, and then I came to know that they were members of the Secret Service. Uh, and of the army in Albania, but, but no matter, that was my first impact. I loved Italian and I wanted to start from the Italian language. Elvira has told us many stories this week um, <laughs> already. That one I haven't heard yet. Learning Italian from the um, Albanian Secret Service. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so you, and you went, uh, so you went on, and you, you studied English at university in Tirana. Is that correct? And then you went to live in the States. So you've got English, Italian, and Albanian are your three main yes, languages. Yes, the three main languages, yes. And you've ended up in Switzerland, which is a pretty good multilingual place mm -hmm. to live in. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, Clarissa, you're... Itali your, anyway, I'll let you describe your own linguistic journey. It's hard to compete with Elvira's stories, um, but I'll try. Um, if you were a gypsy, I, was, I suppose I had a very peripatetic childhood. Um, my mother always said that uh, she had a crash course in comparative obstetrics uh, because she had five children in seven years in five different countries. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, my father was uh, a writer and she was a painter and they had no money and so they relied on grants and foundations and so I was born in Puerto Rico and, uh, and then it went on mostly South America so Brazil, Mexico but another brother was born in Venice um, which I still remember distinctly uh, and uh, another uh, I can't remember Brazil, Mexico. Anyway, we're all over the place. Um, so I started school in Spanish and was fluent in Spanish, but when, I, when my mother took us away and left my father because she was fed up of all this traveling... What was she fed up with? All uh, the languages? I think or an awful the... lot of things. <laughs> okay. 
another um, day. <laughs> we landed in, in her country, which is England. She's English. My father was American. And uh, I clung to that identity as a safe place, I think. Being um, both American and English. And so. English, yes. Mm. But when I first arrived, I had little gold studs in my ears because we came from Mexico City and I was called the gypsy uh, when I first went to primary school. Uh, as a slur, of course, um, because they didn't wear earrings in those days. Girls, young girls didn't wear earrings. So um, I think I have always considered myself English. Um, and the Italian, when the did Italian that? came you, much, you, much you later. Live in Rome. You live yes, in Rome. I you live teach. in Rome. I've lived in Rome for nearly 40 years now. I, um, I studied English literature at Cambridge, and then I changed to languages opportunistically um, because I had fallen in love. And, uh, so do you know, the, the, I think somebody should do a PhD on this. On this, I think because they should. Falling in love should. and languages and how you adopt languages is, has a huge role to play. So I moved to Rome yeah. after graduation. Excellent. And yeah. that's, uh, that's been my stable place ever since. Great. Stefan, beat that if you can. Um, I know you, I'll, I'll I know try. You, I know you can, though. <laughs> <laughs> your, your background is also... Well, I mean, my... Uh, it's uh, it's my parents who sort of um, did strange things. Uh, well, <laughs> so, perhaps like a lot of our parents, and it feels like lives are getting more and more boring through the generations. But uh, my parents were in working in Brazil when I was born. Um, a slightly unusual job. Uh, they were they were there to translate the Bible into an indigenous language. <laughs> they, it's not what I would choose as a career path or, or completely defend, but, uh, but that's what they had. They were, my dad is Swiss and came to Eng England and Ireland and Scotland as a teenager. Swiss uh, German. Uh, he's Swiss German, yeah. See, that's what you have to say in Switzerland. You do have to True. distinguish, don't yeah. you? Yes. Uh, I was working in hotels and then a Protestant Irish couple in Dublin converted him. Uh, and he met my mum at Bible school, who had been a maths teacher, but was also decided to follow the Lord's calling. And that took them to Brazil, where, where they went and started living in, uh, in an indigenous community. Uh, not an isolated one, I, I, should, I should add. It was a community that, interestingly, although I didn't realize at the time, this language that I was starting to speak with a little other little kids, was actually a French Creole that they, that they had picked up because they were up near the French Guiana border and for a while had been in French Guiana. So, uh, and they also have a complete mix of, of identities in a way too. They, have, they had a lot of contact to uh, what are called quilombos in Brazil where runaway slaves formed their own communities. So for example, there's a story that they have which involves a tug of war between a whale and an elephant. Not perhaps what you'd expect from a Brazilian Indian community. So um, yeah, so that was, that was my first other language, Caripuna. Um, so your, your languages, and you translate as well, when, when you have um, lots of free time from publishing books. Um, I, yeah, I wish. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. Um, so Portuguese and German, those are your languages. Yeah, um, the, the two I translate from. And yeah. you translate from Italian. And Elvira writes in uh, Italian and Albanian. Um, before we move on to talk about the book, I just want to know how you feel about being multilingual, multicultural. Is it for you a positive part of your life? Are there problems with it? Do you feel split? Let's explore that idea first of all. Is it easy for you to move from language to language? Yes, that is very easy for me, and I consider it a very healthy madhouse. I mean, it's a contradiction, I know, 
but it's sort of a made house because in our family, my husband is half Swiss German, half Swiss Italian. My mother-in-law is German, and my my uh, father-in-law was uh, Swiss French. So it has always been a, f a family, a house, a household with many languages. So in a way, it helped me being the crazy mind that I had. Languages to me are sort of person. I consider them as, as people. Um, you create a very close relationship, but sometimes you get tired of that kind of relationship when it's too tight, and then you, you just jump on the other one. So I, I feel very comfortable with that, but sometimes it gives me sense, uh, a sense of guilt, especially towards my mother tongue, towards Albanian, which I love with a passion, but it is 30 years now, I do not leave the language every day. I do not leave the language for long periods of time. So it is sort of, it slips away. That's why then when I started writing in Italian, it came after years and years and years. It was not an easy decision to make because literature to me is the only religion I have in a way. Um, so now I, I consider my Albanian, I feel guilty towards it. Mm. It's not that I do not write it, it's not that I do not speak it, but uh, after the, uh, the fall of the communist regime, Albanian has been, the Albanian language has been thriving. So each time I go there, I find the slang so beautiful, so vivid. Uh, we spoke once, I grew up with a totalitarian Albanian, which was very, very rigid. I, there is no one, nowhere to be seen right now. So each time I go, I learn new things, but at the same time, it's as if it's sort of another language because I am, I'm not practicing it every day. And my friends, they make a point in making me feel guilty. The first day and the second day, they say, you speak weird. Mm. Weird <laughs> Albanian. So it's always a sense of betrayal and love at the same time. Uh, which I do not have with the other languages because the roots are, are not in them. I mean, my blood is Albanian. So the only sense of guilt is towards the Albanian language, not the other languages. With the other ones, I fool around, I play with them. Uh, they love me, I love them, I think. And, and it's, it's, a happy, uh, it's a very happy would love you, affair. Would you ever, I mean, you're sitting next to two translators, would you ever translate? You've been working with translators for the last few days. And it has been so beautiful. What, what have you learned from the last few days? Would you, has it put you off translating your own work, for instance, or would you now attempt to possibly translate? Unfortunately, I have done it a couple of times. Unfortunately? Unfortunately, because uh, uh, it's, it's a matter of time as well. Either you write, yeah, you write or you translate. Mm -hmm. And for reasons very long to, to explain here, um, two of my publishers pushed me and said, why don't you write directly in Italian? Because one of the translations from the Italian, from the Albanian into English, and the, the title of the noble was Burned Sun, Sole Burciato. Um, Which Clarissa eventually translated. Well, didn't no, I, I didn't. I mean, I haven't. I've translated a sample, and I'm a desperately sample. trying to persuade people to publish it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> they're using the platform to pitch. I don't know whether that's the right thing to do, but anyway. <laughs> Basically, what, what I did, because the, the publisher wanted it, I translated my book, and of course, they gave me an excellent editor, which was Fausto Vitaliano. And, and then I translated only one of my books, again, mm -hmm. from Albanian into, into English. 
but uh, other in, into Italian, pardon me. Uh, other than that, no. I think I, in the end of the day, I would be a very bad translator. So what is a good translator then? Because well, you, you obviously yeah, are. Yeah. Well, and Elvira, uh, you talked about betrayal and love of your country. I think we all said during the workshops that translation is betrayal and love. It's an act of love. Um, obviously, it's an act of betrayal because you are constantly changing things in the workshop. We were constantly working with, you know, how much can we change? Can we, can we move a comma? Can we move a full stop? Can we, uh, can we actually change the, the whole meaning of the sentence or the rhythm, or do we have to replicate it? So I think, um, I think a good translation is something that reads seamlessly, that is not a postcard from the country, as I think someone famously said, mm -hmm. but is actually uh, something that reads seamlessly in the language that you are writing in. And you are an Italian translator, so why, why are you a translator and not a writer, for example? Just to follow up on this thing. That's, that's a very interesting question. I've explored it. I tend to be second fiddle. I'm a violinist. I'm always second. I, I prefer the position. I like singing contralto. I like singing underneath. I like playing underneath. I now play the viola. Uh, I like being behind the scenes. Um, and I think translating fits that for me. Um, I don't have the uh, that creative uh, urge. I'm not impelled to write, but I love playing with writing, and I love writing. And it is as creative as writing. I mean, Stefan, what do you think about what you've heard so far, and where do you fit into all of that as far as your own languages go? And translation, which you, you did once upon a time much more than you do now. I mean, uh, I, mean I, I, just, I, I mean, I think translations just the most amazing way to spend time with a really good book. Um, it sometimes doesn't quite feel like that when you, uh, when you know you've still got a lot of it to do in a little bit of time. But, uh, but generally, you know, that's, it's, uh, it is, it is that just an amazingly and, and close experience to the text, isn't it? And the fact that you read um, translations and, and books from so many different cultures now, and you see, you, you know, you hover over all of them, as well as editor and publisher, I mean, what have you noticed as far as um, the, if you like, the level of translation as well? Is, is, there, is this, the numbers, of, the numbers of books being translated are increasing? The numbers of, do you think the, the quality is, the quality well, of the I mean, I'm not really the right person to ask about that because as soon as the book's, you know, gone to someone else, it's probably the last thing that I'm going to get around to reading when the translation comes out because there's all the other submissions of things that we could potentially be publishing that people... Yeah. So you're like not as to close to it as you so used I, I, to be. So I don't read as many of, of uh, you know, of your translations, uh, other people's translations, as I'd like to, because it's, you know, it's, it's gone then. You know? Well, let's start you off then talking specifically about this book, because it is thanks to all of you that this book um, has come to life. Um, and this is what I call the miracle of translation. Um, and in fact, when we were trying to decide on the, um, the, the, the title for this uh, session that was one of the titles I suggested was the miracle of translation because this book Sworn Virgin which was published in 2014 I believe um, written by Elvira in Italian translated by Clarissa and published by Stefan and other stories um, is a book about multiple identities and somebody who speaks several languages um, so let's, before we talk about the journey of the book, I think you probably need to know just a little bit about the story, which we've agreed I'll quickly give you a very short um, 
synopsis. And I think what I'm going to do is just read my own even shorter synopsis than the one on the back of the book. Um, and so this is uh, Sworn Virgins. So Hannah, who is the main character, Hannah is 34. She's been living as a man for 14 years in a village in northern Albania. This village has 280 people. She was a sworn virgin. She became a sworn virgin at the age of 20 years old. And that was to avoid being, um, this was in the 1980s, um, and Albania was still um, a Stalinist dictatorship, one of the worst of all the East European countries, um, a very cruel and nasty regime. And Elvira herself suffered horrendously under that regime. Um, and Hannah, in order to avoid being sold off um, and married to a man she didn't love, decided, and this was an option that was open to her, she decided to become a sworn virgin. And she became Mark, literally within an hour. She walked up the stairs, she put on, her, put on some male clothes and very quickly started to drink raki and, um, and carry a gun and work on the farm. And that is um, Hannah's story becoming marked. Then she went to the United States 14 years later at the age of 34, and she stayed with her cousin. She had the option to go and stay with her cousin, Albanian um, cousin from the same area. And she decided in that act of moving to the States that she would then become a woman again. She had the freedom to become a woman again. Now, before we get on to talking about the, the translation and the public, publication, this story of the sworn virgins, which is a very specifically Albanian story, tell us about these remarkable women and what happened to them and how many, how many sworn virgins there are and how you came upon Hannah's story. Well, uh, starting to, to, to answer your last question, there are more or less, there has never been a very serious census about them, but uh, to my estimate, is there are 30 of them left. They are all very old women right now, but this is a tradition that goes on for six centuries, only in the northern, the deep north of Albania, in the Albanian Alps. So uh, there, there have been cases of, uh, of uh, sworn virgins in Montenegro as well, in Kosovo as well, and in Serbia. Um, so, I came to know about them, uh, I was around 16, I, I think, I, as far as I remember, when uh, the neighbors of my parents in the house that I was, uh, where I used to live with my parents, um, the neighbors were from the north. And one day they came with this album, they, had, they were just back from a trip in the northern part of Albania when they had this wedding, this big wedding of the family. And in this album I saw a very tall, beautiful man in the middle. And I asked the neighbor, I said, uh, uh, uncle, because as a, in a sign of respect for us, uncle were all the adults or aunties were all the women. So it, it, it was not related to blood. I said, oh, this is, this is your Batsa, and Batsa is the, the old man of, of all the family, of all the big clan. It, it, there were more than 30 people in that, in that beautiful picture. And he said, no, my dear, um, he is not a man. He's a sworn virgin. I said, I said what? He said, oh, well, you will grow one day. You'll grow up, and you'll come to know about them. 
So later on in the uh, college years, in university years, I was so much fascinated by our fellow students, especially the girls that came from the north. We didn't travel our countries in those years. We were not allowed to drive a car. Uh, we were kept under control. So the tourism is not the, the, the domestic tourism was not something that we, that we knew about. We only went if we had family in another, in another town, especially in, uh, uh, along the coast, but not the north. And these students, these friends of ours, when the, the academic year was over, she, they just disappeared. They disappeared because they went up north. So it was in the north. And, and we were very loud kids. I mean, Tirana kids, we, we felt better than everyone because we were in the capital. We were a little bit freer than them. But I think the writer in me started to be there very, very early. Uh, they had a poise. They were much more silent. They weighed their words. So I was so, so, so fascinated by them. And I tried to ask them about a couple of times about the sworn virgins. They told me mm. about this, but there were no books. There was nothing so as to make me know more. Uh, to make a very long story short, then I left Albania, I started writing other books, I shot a couple of documentaries, and I was in the northern part of Albania for another docu documentary. I was shooting another documentary for the Swiss Public Television, and I asked our stringer, uh, our uh, interpreter, um, if, if by chance we ran into a, a sworn virgin, please to tell me. Mm. So one day this man on a mule, and it was the end of April, if I'm not wrong. Which and, year was this? Uh, it was, if I am not wrong, 2001. Mm -hmm. And it was full of snow to here. Our car couldn't go to the village where we were uh, uh, heading to. And this, this man that was smoking and he was on a mule um, told us the direction and he said, no, no, don't go there. You stop here for tonight. So the, 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 our, our stringer, he came in the car again and he, later he told me, uh, did you see the, the man? He is a sworn virgin. So the man on the mule? Yes, the man on the, uh, on the mule I would have never told. Right because uh, when they take the vow of eternal virginity, they cannot go back, but at the same time, they have to brutalize themselves. So they start drinking, they carry the rifle, they, are, they lose every right as a woman. They, you, you lose some and you win some, you gain some, something. You are not obliged to serve a man anymore. You can go out of the village by yourself. So you, you gain in social status. So the fact, the fact that, and that Hannah in this story, I mean, she wanted to free herself of um, the constraints of being a woman in a very traditional Albanian yes. society. Yes. So, so let, let, um, did you, Clarissa, come to the story first or did you read the book? Or how did you come to, to this? I mean, it's an extraordinary story. I had never heard story. about I'd never Small heard Virgins of it. before I read this book. And since then, there's, uh, there's that incredible collection of photographs um, that are, you know, very representative because they're different ages. Um, and of course, you know, as people get older, they do become more sexless in a way. And so they do look like 
very much like, like old men. Um, the story, I came across the story, I was just um, editing a, a, a women's magazine in Italy that had a little tiny review, and I just thought, this sounds fascinating, I'm going to go and get it, and I went and bought it immediately, the old Feltrinelli edition, and I read it, and then, luckily, Elvira already had a website, and uh, I got in touch with her, and I said, can I translate a sample? And that was the beginning of the journey of the book. But I think what's fascinating is that um, the Swan Virgin tradition is um, a, a construct. Uh, and it's nothing to do with sentiment. And that's what's so fascinating about it, because it's a social construct. And uh, I was just talking with Elvira yesterday about how, just in the last five years since the book was published, so much has changed in terms of how we talk about these things. And, you know, the, the, the non-binary gender fluidity thing, even only five years ago, we, it never occurred to any of us, not to Sophie, my lovely editor, not to you, not to Elvira, not to me, to use the singular they. Or we didn't have any of those problems because it was a social construct and because it was a decision. It was nothing to do with her sexuality or her gender. There's no change. Um, they smoked a lot of cigarettes, so their voices would be raspy. Um, and they but, drank a lot of raki. And they drank yes. a lot of raki yeah. and, uh, and had very, very tough lives out in the, uh, out in the fields. Um, so they were, you know... And how, how easy or difficult was it to convince um, a publisher to publish this in, in, actually very strange book? It's a very strange book, and uh, I think that is really the little miracle, and it's never happened since, um, that I put the sample in the post, literally in a brown envelope, and that has never happened since, partly because we don't put things in brown envelopes anymore. Oh, no, we still get things in brown envelopes. <laughs> you do. Well, I don't. Written, if I'm in, sending written a... in green ink. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I send a sample, I will now do it by email, uh, if I can get hold of somebody's email, you know, the commissioning editor or whatever. But it literally was a brown envelope and a little tiny presentation. And you had the instinct and acumen and wisdom. And wisdom <laughs> let's, and let's curiosity, I think curiosity. It, what was it like to, to read? Can you remember reading it the first no, time? No, not the first time. I mean... Uh, I mean, obviously, I remember once the whole book came in Clarissa's translation, reading that, but I, I, I'm afraid my memory's not no, good enough not, to remember the, the moment. And it would be nice to say, I remember the moment when I yes. landed on this. But that would make do, a nice moment get, on stage. We, we, do, get, we, we do sort of have a pile that. of manuscripts sort of that yeah. big waiting to be read. And uh, generally, it, it's sort of a, a part of, the, of, of work that tends to be... Um, well, it's uh, sort of a little bit dreaded <laughs> because we do have uh, this open submissions policy so anyone can send things in and we do get all sorts of things and most of the time they're not good. And, ob and obviously, um, it's, it's then a real relief when something brilliant the, comes but, in like, like this is, book. And it's yeah. because, isn't you said, I, I didn't find it... I mean, I find the, the character situation is, is certainly unusual. Um, but... I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that the book is strange to me. It feels very much, you really get in, it's a very psychological book. You're really in, you know, you get into the head of, of the character. It's quite traditional too, in um, structure. It's quite traditional in the narrative because mm. it's made up of present day and flashbacks to her past. And you see the change from Hannah to Mark to mm. Hannah changing countries and and, and languages and, too. I, and I think it, it was also just fascinating that yeah the, the change of language and place and how um, 
obviously we've talked more about the the the, the first half or, or so of the book uh, where she where she bec has become Mark and then is um, and then is preparing to 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 leave this this role she has as a sworn virgin, but then the second half in in America is also interesting because you might think then she arrives in America and it's all sort of very simple, but she she also sees the construct in how she her, her the Albanian family she has that has gone to live in America how they expect people how they expect women to to dress and behave in America and she now Hannah again doesn't 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 really want that so it's um it's yeah, it 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 it's it does show all sorts of different um, constructs, not just can, the, the Albanian. Can I ask, as a virtual. publisher, though, I mean, when you get a book by an Albanian writer, it must you, your ears must prick up a little bit because there aren't that many. I, I, I don't know. Alvira can tell us. I, I'm, I have to say, I certainly don't get many submissions no. of Albanian writers, but um, probably, you know, probably we're we're, we're all just missing out. And uh, and Alvira can tell us who we should be who we should be reading. Yes, it is. It's a pity because there are some wonderful, wonderful pens that write in Albania. I mean, Albanian writers and poets, excellent mm -hmm. ones. But uh, it's such a small language if we go, I mean, as compared to English, for example. So they do not find the venue, they do not find the editors, they don't find the, the publishers. And it's a, a huge pity and... Um, uh, do you, do you know any Albanian to English translators, Elvira? Yes, there are yeah. some. Yes, now there are some. And they are very good. And they are trying to do something. But it's, I mean, you know, you know better than me. I mean, the publishing world is difficult. It's hard not to crack. And sometimes they succeed, sometimes they, in, in most cases, they do not succeed. But on, right on, a, on a language point of view, though, to stick with um, Sworn Virgin and, you know, the, the language issues, particularly with this one, um, the fact that you wrote it in Italian, um, and, I mean, that's, in a way, that's, is that a political choice as well, or a publishing choice? Um, it's obviously a linguistic choice for you. No, I have been accused of it sometimes, um, but no, not at all. Not in, in, in all honesty, um, I was living with the Italian language every day. I did my journalistic work, or better, my documentaries, and I wrote my texts directly in Italian. And I collaborated with a number of uh, uh, Italian filmmakers, and we wrote uh, um, uh, the screenplays together. Mm -hmm. So when it came to literature, it, it, it was the ripe moment. In a way, it just the first sentences came to me in Italian. Uh, sometimes I, I, I ask not myself but my mind, mind, why or oh why, why now? And uh, I do not know. Even though this is your most Albanian book in many ways, or the uh -huh, uh -huh, yes, yes. In Clarissa, as far as the translation goes, I mean, the translation of this, uh, there have been some really interesting reviews of this, and saying mm. that there was one which said something, this book, Sworn Virgin, was, was, was written to be translated. I think, um, I mean, Elvira is, maybe... Isn't that a what, wonderful phrase? Is, yes. but, I, but I do understand it, really. I, I, I don't know. Actually, I, I can't remember where the do review comes that? from now, yeah. but um, I can't remember who said that, but I, I have to say that wouldn't be my favourite part of a review. I feel like... I feel like a book that isn't written to be translated is, uh, yeah. is would, I mean, well, I, this, I, this, I... This particular point, though, is something I know that Clarissa had, um, had some strong views on. Then we'll hear, we'll hear what I think, you think. I mean, you're, when you're talking about, you know, 
why am I doing it in Italian? Maybe there was a distancing mechanism there, being able to write about your home country and this, this quite brutal tradition yes, I in another language. I wanted to add something about that. It was, uh, yeah, go yeah. ahead. In, along the years, that's what I understood. Um, those, I love the northern part of Albania. It's really, really, really beautiful. And those mountains, they impose themselves into you. Uh, to me, Sworn Virgin was a book on solitude, about solitude. I mean, you take this kind of decision, or you are forced to take this kind of decision. To when be, a, to you be are, a Sworn when Virgin. Are, yes, when you are still 14, 13, you don't know anything about love, you don't know anything about sex. And uh, what about later? When you fall in love, but you cannot tell anyone, you cannot even confide that to your sister or to your brother or to your mother and father, because it would be a dishonor at that point. You can so never go back, right? Solitude of these women and having me as a, as a young girl suffered so much with, with the solitude of being an Albanian and not being free to talk because we were raised with every morning from our parents, please watch your mouth. My father loved me with passion, but he knew that I was the black sheep of the family in a way, and one day perhaps I would have been the person to put them in trouble, which, which happened later. But So it was this kind of solitude um, that I interiorized because it was there. So when I, when I wrote it in Italian, it was as if I was protecting, defending myself from too much of an emotion. That's why. Mm. Now, Clarissa, this idea, though, um, this, which was actually just something that was put out there provocatively of this, this um, reviewer, that this book was made to be translated. I know that you do have um, views on that. So can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? I think... Um, I don't think that you, you were interpreting that quite right. I think um, what she meant, um, this was in the quarterly review, um, was that she became increasingly more comfortable with herself as she became more English. So her, Han Hannah did, yeah, the, Hannah the main did, character. The main character. So I think one of the fascinating things about it as a translator was that her, Hannah's constant search when she first moved to America for words, she was always trying to name things. She was always trying to find a name for things. And of course, it's easy to name you know, the table and the lamp and the pen and the book, but it's not so easy to name your feelings and your emotions and your loneliness your solitude. So it's an interesting, I think immigrant novels have become quite fashionable nowadays. Again, in the last five years, the, the emphasis has changed, I think. Um, this is not an immigrant story. It's, an, it's, an em it's about emigration. Um, and yet she becomes, it becomes an immigrant story, but not of that kind where she wants to completely assimilate and become American. She wants to assimilate her own body and her own identity. So I think that's what they meant, is that it was, seems you know, incredibly comfortable. She seems very comfortable with herself in her newfound language. Yeah, and there's this thing about writing in a language or, or learning to speak a language that isn't your mother tongue mm -hmm. is um, just to sort of circle around to, uh, to where we said we were going to be ending up where, you know, Switzerland. It was, of course, interesting for the Swiss Germans because it's, uh, it's a similar thing for them that they write in what they would call High German, which is not the language they grow up speaking, uh, as it were, although 
you know, question of what is a language and if a language is just something that needs an army or what. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's certainly high German is very different to Swiss German. And, uh, but some people think that that gives Swiss writers also a certain freedom, the same freedom that Elvira was talking about when writing in a language that is not the mother tongue to play with it. How do you, I mean, growing up in Switzerland, partly as you do, and we do I mean, do you, do you speak Swiss German, for instance? No, I, no. in fact, I've never, I've never lived in Switzerland, yeah. and my so, dad, um, uh, when, when my parents met, my mum decided, well, she'd better learn German, and then she went to Switzerland for a few months with him and realised that was no good. No one wanted to speak high German to her, <laughs> um, yes. particularly, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of 50 years ago when... Uh, when the war was still closer and, and people were very, and, and also people had been forced to, to, or the schooling was in high German, but you would get beaten if you, were, if you spoke Swiss German at school. So people didn't want to speak high German. So she then sort of was stuck. And, uh, and my dad just spoke English at home. So yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't unfortunately, it's, it's a bit like, a, no, it's a big regret. I can't speak Swiss German. I, I just learned German at school. I mean, German is the uh, is the majority language in in Switzerland too. But it is interesting because um, you know, on the surface, you could argue that a country like Switzerland, which um, has four national languages, um, is the ideal country to live in as a linguist um, because you can hop across all the different languages: so French, German, Italian, and Romansh, and lots and lots of dialects and so on. Um, and you live in the Italian part Speaking of Switzerland, Switzerland yeah. so Ticino. So you're speaking Italian all the time anyway, and Albanian at home, I imagine, with your, your family. But what do you speak at home? Uh, well, English, French, Italian. <laughs> so, so, I knew it wasn't easy. <laughs> and Spanish. So it's, yo tengo un cacao mental, it's uh, all the time. <laughs> And, uh, well, for the immigrants, I mean, uh, the Albanians now, uh, since the, um, the, the wall fell, uh, it has become a country, uh, uh, a, a people of diaspora. One million and a half Albanians left Albania, and they are still fleeing for different reasons, not for political reasons, but they are, they are leaving the country. Uh, so it depends on where you land as an immigrant in Switzerland. Because in, when they come in Italy, in France, they have to grapple or struggle only with one language, and they have to assimilate that language. If you come and you are in, in exactly in, in, the, in the Swiss German part, you have the Schwitzerdeutsch in the language of every day. But if you, have, if you go to school, you have the Schriftdeutsch, you have the, Hoch, the Hochdeutsch. So it is, it is difficult. And so the Albanian diaspora, for, for example, uh, the the older generation, the parents, they keep to their Albanian, and and they speak Albanian with their kids. That in the meantime, uh, they become Swiss Germans, and they speak Schweizerdeutsch and then Hochdeutsch, who goes uh, for the higher education. So it it cuts both ways. It depends where you it land. It depends on yes. where you land. But the fact that I mean, there was so much Italian television. Well, not so much. There wasn't enough um, television being beamed in from the rest of Europe into Albania. But there was Greek television because of the proximity to Greece, and there was Italian television. So you picked up a lot of Italian, I imagine, from. Well, we television. have a beautiful Swiss public television in the Italian language. So mm -hmm. we have it in 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 French. We have. Swiss Romand has it in French, we have it in Italian, and uh, the other one that is in Zurich, so... I mean, Clarissa, is Italian in Rome, is it different from Swiss Italian? Uh, 
Um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't know. I don't think yeah. I'm qualified to answer that because oh, I've never really. Yeah. Elvira can probably answer yeah. it better. Yes, I can. I, I can answer this better. She because can answer most things. It's really wonderful. <laughs> no, because, ask, no, because ask her anything. Because <laughs> I am I am closer to Milan than to Zurich. I mean, in, in 35 minutes, I'm in Milan, and it definitely feels very Italian. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Switzerland for you. Yeah. So it's very Italian, but then Tirana, the capital of Albania, feels very Italian. The buildings are, you know, fascist Italian. Yes. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> and, you know, Berlusconi was a figurehead, wasn't he, for a long time? Um, so I think that's, and anyway, going back to Switzerland, I think Switzerland must be a wonderful place to be a translator because there's good funding. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, Italy is shamefully negligent on that kind of soft power front. Um, they don't have any governmental bodies. They don't have any institutions. The Foreign Office used to have an, a department, and they cut that back. And there is no funding. If you think the amount of funding there is for French translation coming from the French government, the Italian government has zilch. Mm. But to answer your question about the Italian we speak in, in, uh, in uh, Ticino, in the Italian-speaking section, it is much like the Milano way of speaking, so the northern part of Italy. It's the, even in the dialect, the Ticino dialect, which I speak, of course, because many people speak only, uh, I mean, they speak both Italian and dialect, but they, they slip into dialect very, so very easily. So you speak like six or seven languages? Well, I... I Ticino, well, dialect, Ticino yeah. dialect and Italian. Do you speak Schwitzerdeutsch? Schwitzerdeutsch, uh, yeah, I know all the dirty words. <laughs> and Teach some more. Stefan a few. But, he wants to get but to But because of the Schwitzerdeutsch, I lost my Hochdeutsch. I mean, I can read newspapers, but I cannot read fiction in Hochdeutsch. And uh, yes, it is, it's not a very rich Italian we speak in, in Ticino. Uh, as compared to Florence, for example, or as compared to Rome, which is completely another thing. But the Italian is a very regional language. So where, where do you say that this, this is better Italian than this one? Mm. Mm. Um, let's come back very briefly to Sworn Virgin, then, if you've got some questions as well. And we should have time. I'll ask Kate whether we've got a bit of time for questions. Um, Sworn Virgin is actually a book about language. Um, and it is about somebody um, transforming themselves, translating themselves, um, to use your, um, not your phrase, but your feeling it's about It's on all of our bags. Yes, it's, I mean, on, all so the, it's on all we the have our bag bags. Yes. carrying a cross. She's carried across the ocean, she's mm -hmm. carrying across identities, she's carrying across her cultural appropriations. So, yes, definitely about translation in that sense. And in a she wider says, sense. doesn't she, she says when she's in, in the United States, Hannah, as she is transforming herself back into being a woman, she says that, that in fact, the language is more important to her than her gender. Um, can you, to, I mean, that's a, a fascinating um, exploration. So tell us a little bit about that. Because to transform her body, uh, was of much harder than to com communicate with people. So in all the years that she acted and was a man socially, and everyone respected her for that. Because the thing I, I, I failed to make clear is that, as I said before, you gain some, you gain in social status and you lose all the rest. Because the women for centuries in Albania and as in Balkans, but in, in all the Balkans, but especially in Albania, the northern part of Albania, they were considered the lowest of the lowest of the society. So in the moment that you challenged the rules 
of the, of the men, they respected you. They all knew that you were a Swiss virgin, but they... A Swiss virgin. A, oh, I love it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. This was nice. Yes. A Swiss virgin. It was a, a Swiss very nice sworn thing. virgin. Yeah. A uh, new tradition is born. You for I think that. that's ended all prohibitive funding yeah. now. <laughs> so you were the only woman as a man to go and drink with men. You could shoot and be shooted and be shot. Uh, so they respected you for that. Mm -hmm. So in all her solitude, uh, the only license and the only shortcut I took because I felt comfortable with it is to make Hannah uh, an English language student. Mm -hmm. But she was so lonely, so lonely, she couldn't tell anyone that she regretted the thing she had done. That when she went to the United States, to her was more important to communicate and to blend in before, it's so much so that in the book, many times she says, there is no hurry, she says to her cousin, who wants to rush up things yes. and say, hey, now you are here. And she said, there is no hurry, there is time for yes. that, there is time for that. Yes. So language, in a way, was the thing that built the bridge for her. And I, I, when I finished this book, which I absolutely adore with a passion, and I can't thank you enough for publishing it, but also Clarissa for the absolutely wonderful translation, and I suppose we have to thank you as well for writing it, but anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's that. Clarissa for me, because without Clarissa, the, the book would have never seen the light of the day in English, and then it went, I mean, she was the bridge, and she did the job, and then it was the fun. But so. In the brown envelope, but, but, but also, I, it feels when you come to the end, you just want to hear part two, you want to hear what happened to Hannah, the sequel. Um, but can I just ask you, Stefan, before, and as a publisher too, um, how, this is it's a great story. As you said, it's, it's not a, it's strange, but it's an absolutely fantastic, unputdownable story in that sense. What happens to Hannah? Um, and this is such an unusual story as well. And how do you think, in having been a publisher of foreign fiction for quite a while now, how do you think that readers are responding to these in speech marks, unusual stories from around the world. <laughs> Not strange, but unusual. Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, if there's a problem with uh, not enough translations coming out, it's not the readers. <laughs> I mean, readers, I, I think, obviously there are some readers who only want to read stories about British World War II pilot Linear, linear narratives, <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, there's plenty of readers who want to read all sorts of stories and are curious about about the whole world. It, uh, the problem is just more simple things like economics of uh, you know of of, uh, of you know translation costs and uh, and tour costs when the author isn't local and, and all that kind of stuff and the fact you know so the, the problems are not the problems are in the problems are not because people aren't keen to read the stories. Absolutely, has not. it got better? over the last few years? So this book came out in 2014. What's the... There are more translations published. I don't think there are necessarily more copies of each translation being sold, unless you, you, know, unless you win the Man Booker International or something. But uh, that's, that's obviously a nice new prize to, to sort of throw into the mix. But and that's the just... EBRD Literature Prize. Yeah, and, and indeed, yeah. No, there, obviously, there, there are some wonderful things happening. Um, on the whole, I think... There's still, you know, it's still a, it's still a, it's still a hard, uh, still a hard gig, yeah. 
So the, because your English is, um, is almost fluent, English, to what extent it was a collaborative translation with Clarissa? No, I left everything to Clarissa because I love English too much and I didn't want to be arrogant. And so I felt so comfortable with her and I sounded so well in English. So why bother? <laughs> <laughs> Clarissa, anything to add to that? I felt very comforted by the fact that Elvira was on the other end of a phone um, and that we enjoyed having Skype sessions. And so we did actually have a kind of triangulation between Sophie and Brazil. Uh, Elvira Sophie was living in the States Sophie at was, the time. I'm working for And Other Stories as yes, the editor. editor. Yes. Elvira was in the States at the time. I was in the States. So she was very attuned to, mm. to American. And um, so I think I felt there was collaboration. Um, so having these three languages at your disposal and in your head when you were writing this book about an Italian, uh, about an Albanian character in Italian, to what extent were you retaining certain Albanianisms and Englishisms and the different multicultural, multilingual parts of yourself and the criteria yes, yes. you use? Yeah. Uh, the, the common point between Albanian and Italian is that the syntax is the same. So it's not like German, for example. So in, in that sense, writing in, in, in Italian didn't make the other language change in a way or the other. But since Hanna lives in the northern part of Albania, and that is a dialect of its own, which is called Geg, which I know but I do not speak and I do not write, writing it in Italian made me take or keep some words that are said and are beautiful, almost you cannot even translate them. They are so, so beautiful. So I decided to keep them in Albanian. And this is how it worked. In a way, the Italian, writing it in Italian helped me with that as well. Uh, I am not a gag writer, I mean the gag, the northern part of Albania and Kosovo. They speak and write, they speak more than write. Uh, the gag dialogue, dialogue, whereas the central and, and southern part of Albania, we have the literary language, which it's another, we can discuss for hours together about this later. <laughs> Uh, so, writing it in Italian, for me, it made it even easier not to disrespect the dialogue of the North and the, 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 dialect, the dialect of the North. Of the north. Mm -hmm. So, it was easier, that thing, as well. Uh, just something out of your curiosity, why did I take Hannah to America? First of all, because I placed her in my neighborhood which I, I, I lived, I used to live in the, in, the, in the East Coast at the time, in Washington DC area. But because after the book, I, after, after a long research and deep thoughts about the book, um, I decided to write the book without first meeting any sworn virgin and talking to them. A whole lot of research for years and years, and then I, when I turned in the manuscript of the book, I decided to see if what I had written was it really the real thing or I was completely making it up. So I decided to go to Albania and shoot a documentary on the real sworn virgins, but they had never been on a camera until that moment. So, um, 
my producers of the Swiss public television said, you go for that, but I, I didn't have any guarantee that I could have them on camera. It was like violating their world in a way. So I went by my own uh, without any guarantee that I could, I could have them. But since a, a, a previous book of mine was very, very, very well known and reprinted many times in Albania, they knew about me. So in a way, they trusted me uh, after having drank so many grap, uh, so much grappa. Uh, they, they they wanted, if uh, pardon my French, because to say to have the courage is sort sort of mm, lame. Uh, if I had the balls, they said, okay, do I have the balls? Drink with us. <laughs> so uh, I had to have the approval of one of them, and then she was sort of the 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 the, the sworn virgin in chief. And, and <laughs> She was 82, and then she said to the others, okay, she's okay, she will not abuse of us. So then I shot the documentary, and uh, one, in, in all the documentary, I did a long form one, only one of them, because they are old now, and they, they do not even want to, to, to say to themselves that yes, we regret it. It was too late in life. Whereas the last of them, she was uh, uh, a truck driver, by profession, by profession, she regretted it. And later, after the documentary, I, she, she asked for help so as to go out of Albania because she wanted to become a woman again. I mean, at least so, so, I mean, socially, not, she, was, she, she didn't plan to have sex. She, she, didn't, she said she wanted to give love only to my, to my sister and my, my nephews, but at my age, I will never be a woman again. And I was trying to find a place for her in Italy, but Italy was too close for comfort because of the diaspora, of the Albanian diaspora. And she didn't want to pass as, oh, she broke the, the vow now. So America was her dream because she had a sister in America, but at the same time, because the American women told by her sister, was not as fashionable. So she wouldn't have passed as a weirdo, because her voice were so... Uh, yeah. So placing it in America before even knowing her, and her name is Sania, Sania it made me feel comfortable then that I, I had invented them, and at the same time they were so... In my book, they were so close to the reality that then I met. It's an absolutely incredible story, isn't it? It really is. It makes me want to actually read more and to see those photos and to see the documentary as well. How are sworn virgins treated differently in Albanian society, say, compared with transgender? Uh, they are, as I said before, they are uh, treated with respect in the north. But Tirana, the capital and the southern part of Albania, was completely oblivious of them. And the, the communist regime let them live. Because they didn't disturb, they didn't challenge the communist regime. So they were not, because sex was not uh, in, in the game. They lost every possibility or every right to have sex with a man or to fall in love. They became men and that was to be respected. And it all goes down to uh, a set of rules of regulations that have regulated that has regulated the the last six centuries of the northern part of Albania, uh, where the kanun it is called kanun the kanun expressively 
speaks, talks about the rules to follow. So uh, in case of one of them disobeying and, and, uh, and going back to woman would meant to kill her. But it has never been anywhere documented that any one of them did something like this. There is an LGBT community in Tirana. They have a huge courage. They are wonderful, but they, of course they struggle. And bit by bit they are breaking the taboos of the Albanian society. Mm -hmm. Yes, so in, in the Albanian society of now, with all the modernity of it, uh, the trans people are the ones that suffer more. I think we do have to end it there before you all melt away. <laughs> um, and I just want to thank... Um, I mean, this has just been the most wonderful um, session. Um, thank you very, very, very much. Thank First you, Rosie. All, thank you so no, much. Elvira Dones and... It's been... Such a pleasure. And um, Clarissa Botsford, it's been an enormous pleasure. It's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much. And thank you for translating. And Stefan, it's too rare a pleasure to see you. It is wonderful to see you here. Thank you for coming. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you for listening. And thanks to Avira and everybody else for taking part in that amazing discussion. If you have questions or would like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre, find our Facebook page, join the Discord channel, of which you will find a link down in the show notes, or sign up to our newsletter at our website over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And if you want to know more about the Noirage Crime Writing Festival, you can find that on the dedicated website at noirage.co.uk. Thanks again. Keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode.